Open your Bible, if you will, to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. As you turn there, I want to give you the basic message that comes from this passage of Scripture, and it's simply this, that the ultimate test of loyalty to God is obedience. And we have before us this morning in this passage of Scripture not only an act of great obedience, but a man who was a man of incredible commitment to obey the Lord. Now, let me pause and name him. His name is Abraham. And let me also add to that that Abraham, although primarily obedient, was not always obedient. He had feet of clay. As I think about the figures in Scripture, the heroes in particular, the Davids and the Abrahams and so many of the great men in Scripture, one of the things that makes the Bible reliable to me and appealing to me is that when the biblical writers under inspiration of the Holy Spirit describe these individuals, he described them warts and all. Abraham had some very low moments in his life after he began to follow the Lord in obedience. The most notable of those was when his wife Sarah, after many years from the time that they had been given a promise that they would have a child. At the time of the promise, Abraham was 75 years old. She was 65. Many years had passed over ten years to be exact, and she got impatient. She said, in effect, I'm beyond the age of bearing children, and you're beyond the age of siring children, so I have an idea. And it was perfectly within the confines of the cultural setting of their lives. If a woman had a maidservant and could not bear children, then she could have her maidservant be her substitute. And her maidservant was an Egyptian woman by the name of Hagar. And so she went to her husband and said, Honey, it isn't working out for us. Common sense would dictate it won't work out for us in terms of being this couple whom God has chosen to have an offspring and the whole world will be blessed by it. So, I have an idea. Hagar can become your lover. And hopefully, God will bless that relationship and she will have a child. Legally, the child will be mine. And consequently, we know the child will be yours. And therefore, we can help God fulfill His promise. Now, that was a mistake. By the way, Abraham never objected, as far as we know, to that arrangement. He should have stood up and said no, but he didn't. So he had feet of clay, didn't he? He sure did. Also, there were two other times similar situations, one set in Philistia, the other in Egypt, and Sarah was a very attractive woman. And when he made his way with his entourage, he was a very wealthy man, and he came in to the kingdom of Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and to Egypt, to Pharaoh, he told his wife each time, he said, Honey, tell these men, 
that you are my sister. Because if they find out that you are my wife, they're going to kill me. And she did as he said. And he was rather clever because she really was his half-sister. They had the same father, different mothers. Well, she did that. Well, that was not in God's will for him to lie. There's no way. So we have a man who was a coward at some points. He was a liar at other points. But God overcame that in his life. And the summation of his life is that he was a man of great faith. In fact, the Bible gives him the distinction that it gives no other person. He is the only person in Scripture who by name is described as God's friend. We know Jesus said to his apostles, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. So if we are followers of Jesus, if we're disciples of Christ, we are, by virtue of Jesus' relationship to us and ours to him, we are his friends. And he is God, the God-man. Truly God, truly man. Consequently, we are friends to the Lord But Abraham was chosen, and here's the reason why. He was a man of faith. He is the prototype of a man of faith that is given to us in Scripture. God points to him more than one time as being such a person. So, he was a man who was obedient too. Ultimately obedient. And by the way, faith without works is dead. Works don't save us. But if, works is, if our faith is real, works do serve as evidence that we are truly people who are born again by the living and abiding Word of God. Look at this passage of Scripture with me, beginning with verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood from the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb For a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. I'll come back, time permitting, to look at the rest of this passage. But what we see is a test. This was an incredible test. I'm going to suggest four things about this test and see how they relate to our lives as friends of God, if we in fact are such people. The first of which is, this was a comprehensive test. Forty years had passed from the time that God interacted with this man, Abraham. The story is told in Genesis chapter 12. Forty years. 
And there had been a lot of testing which occurred in his life. This was the epitome of testing in his life. But he had so many tests that he faced. And it was a comprehensive example. Do any of you ever recall, some of you are too old like me to recall too much about this, but when we were in school, did you ever have a comprehensive test? And that kind of gave me the jitters every time I heard that term. A comprehensive, that means I had to go back all the way to the first class and go all the way to the time of the exam, and I was responsible for all of that. Well, this exam was comprehensive. It covered the entire life of Abraham. We might say that Abraham's life was characterized by a series of tests, one building upon the other. Let's consider the elements of this test, which would be true of the tests which we face in our lives as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, God spoke to Abraham. Look at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is the ninth time that God is described as speaking to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Considering the length of time of the relationship between Abraham and God, that's not that many times. We're not saying that God didn't speak other times, but God did speak to him in a very clear way at this point. Do you know God tests us by speaking to us? Do you believe God can speak to you today? I do. And that's why it's important for us to be open to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us. Every time we open this Bible and we deprive ourselves not to mention God, we deprive ourselves of the blessing of hearing from God and obeying God, and then we deprive God of the friendship He created us the second time for to be His friends, to carry out His purposes in this world. And so God spoke to him. We assume it was in an audible voice. We don't know that for sure. But God speaks to us by the Spirit today through His Word. Abraham answered. He said, here I am. He simply responded to the Lord. It was as if he were saying, Lord, I'm available to you whatever you want. Do you know that faith is a human response to divine revelation? And God has given us His Word. He speaks to us. Every morning, you and I have the opportunity, throughout every day, we have the opportunity to be in conversation with the Lord in conjunction with what He says to us through His Word. This is why it's important for us to read the Word and have enough of it in our minds and hearts as we go through the day that we can meditate on it. We can think about it. And at times when we're least expecting it, many times God will speak to your heart and give you insight and direction as to what you should do after having understood who you are in Christ. Abraham answered, He paid attention to God. We need to pay attention to God. Be attentive. Be available to God. 
That's what we see Abraham doing. He says, here I am. It's as if he was raising his hand and saying, Lord, I'm volunteering. Here I am. You've spoken, Lord. And I want to follow you and be obedient to him, to you. That's what we have to do in relationship to the Lord. And Abraham acted too. Evidence that we know and believe God is that we do what God says. We hear and we do. Now he acted by being prompt in verse 3. Look at how he acted in response to what God said to him. He arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. Now please understand, the trip that he was about to take from this place called Beersheba, we didn't read that, but if we read a little earlier in the previous chapter, a place called Beersheba to the land of Moriah, that would have been a three-day journey. And it would not be something that you would want to begin at night. This message God gave him, this voice that God used to speak to him, probably occurred late in the day. He had a little preparing to do to get ready for this journey. And also, he didn't want to travel at night because it was not safe and it was uncertain travel at night. So he waited. But early in the morning, he got up at the crack of dawn. He was ready to go. And he took, of course, Isaac, his son, and two of his servants. He saddled his own donkey, got on it, and we don't know whether the others rode or walked, but it was a rather slow pace. Now, this is what happened. I'm speculating here, using my sanctified imagination. But I would imagine that on that journey, this man, Abraham, had a lot going on in his mind and heart. He had plenty of time for his own difficult struggle to reach a peak, to think about sacrificing his own son. And let me just say this. When we seek to obey the Lord and we follow the Lord, it's always, always associated with struggle. When Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, in the book of 1 Corinthians 16, he writes to them, he says, there is a wide door for effective service which is open to me. He was in Ephesus. And then he goes on to say, and there are many opponents. There is much opposition. So there's struggle from without. But there's also, and I think this is the bigger struggle, the internal struggle. Because the big issue, I'm sure, for Abraham was what he was going to do in obedience to the Lord as it related to his son, as it's described here, his only son, Isaac. Now, backtrack about 15 years. Abraham, 100 years old. His wife, 90. She gives birth. The midwife takes the baby. And after cleaning the baby boy off a bit, hands the baby to this aged patriarch. He takes that baby in his arms. I can imagine... If he didn't already suffer from tremors, he got his first start on that. As he held that little child in his arms and he looked into that little face and he saw what that represented to him, the fulfillment of the promise of God. He had waited for 25 years for this moment. But not only that, it represented his own legacy. After all, God had promised him. Abraham, that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. We know that a nation still existing today, Israel. And that 
that child would be the source of a blessing for the whole world. That would include most of us as Gentiles because from that baby Isaac eventually came the person of Jesus Christ. Look at the genealogy of Jesus. And so we see the struggle that would have been going on in him. How am I going to do this? But he was brought back to what he had learned from all those previous tests which he faced. And every one of those tests, by the way, the big ones at least, had to do with relationships. Think about this. At the age of 75, he leaves his father's house in Ur of the Chaldees. And he goes someplace that he doesn't even know where he's going. God doesn't even tell him what the destination is. He just says, pack up your stuff, liquidate what you don't want to carry with you, and go. And he and his wife Sarah go, accompanied by one relative, his nephew Lot, who, by the way, must have been like a substitute son, an adopted son to him. He loved Lot. And that brings us to the second separation. Separated from his father, but then separated from Lot. If you read this story in the 18th, 19th chapters of Genesis, they had both big flocks of sheep and other animals. And Abraham said, we need to divide. There's not enough room for both of us. And so that happened. That must have put a hurt in the heart of this man too. And then as we go forward, remember that baby I talked about that he fathered through Hagar? the Egyptian handmaiden of Sarah. His name was Ishmael. The conflict in the world really today between Islam and Judaism and Christianity goes all the way back there. You can trace the lineage of Islam all the way back to this event. But when that child left, it was not as though Abraham said, good riddance. His heart broke. He loved that boy. He was his own flesh and blood. But God told him to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And now here we are at Isaac. This is so typical of God. Sometimes when we really are called to follow Him, we are called to put Him in a place that makes us uncomfortable because He calls us to put Him in a place even above the most significant relationships we have on earth. When Jesus issues His call to follow Him as a disciple, and please make the distinction in your own mind between the word apostle and disciple. Do you know that the word Christian only occurs three times in the New Testament? Three times. Do you know how many times the word disciple occurs? Over 260 times. It's the word of choice by the Holy Spirit of God to describe what a real Christian is. A real Christian is a lifelong learner and follower after Christ. So, Jesus is the one. Speaking about Christian discipleship, He says, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and brothers and sisters and wife and children, and yes, even his own life, this is the hardest part. He cannot be my disciple. Well, Jesus clarifies this for us when we put it together with what he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Jesus never calls anybody to hate anybody else. 
He says in that section, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So what he's saying when he says we have to hate all these other significant relationships, he's saying to us, in effect, when you look at the human relationships, your wife, your husband, your children, your grandchildren, your parents, your brothers, sisters, the love that you have for those people, the most significant, is a love that will look like hate in comparison to your commitment to me. Jesus will brook no rival in our lives. He will make us better husbands, better wives, better parents. He will make us better siblings, but He requires first place in our lives. And here we see this man, Abraham, undoubtedly wrestling, saying as he makes that trek, surely this is a nightmare. Bad dream. I hope I wake up from it at times. But as he moved forward, the writer of Hebrews gives us help to interpret what really eventually he settled on. In Hebrews eleven nineteen, the Bible talks about how he considered the command of God and the promise of God. And as he considered that, he came to a place of believing God has promised that he is going to bless the whole world through this baby boy who's become a teenager. And our God does not lie. He's faithful. So I can trust Him even if I do slay Him in obedience as a sacrifice that He will raise Him from the dead. And by the way, we know that this whole event is a picture of the sacrifice which God the Father made for us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus was slain and Jesus was raised from the dead. So as one grows in his or her faith walk with God, that person's faith is not so much tested by what God says not to do, but what God tells us to do. That is the challenge, to hear what he says and obey. This test is not only a comprehensive test, it's also a necessary test. Test To flunk the obedience test, quite frankly, is to flunk life. This test is necessary to ensure that God is our priority relationship. We've already talked about this. We must consciously put Jesus above all other relationships. I'll share a story with you set in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania late in the 19th century. There was a family, the Rubin family. They owned the most lucrative, most successful business in all of Pittsburgh. It was a department store. The man who founded it, Mr. Rubin, had two sons. He had written his will. He was advancing in years. So he wrote the will. He sat down with his sons. He says, boys, when I die... You are going to get the business 50-50. The only stipulation I put on your getting the business is that you never lose, lose rather your faith in the Jewish religion. Do you understand? Yes, Father, we understand. 
Soon thereafter, one of the sons, Maurice, I don't know the other one's name, but Maurice, who loved making money, he loved it. He was arrested by the kind of lifestyle lived by one of his buyers for the department store. And in a moment of conversation, he said, were you born happy, he said to him. And the man said very promptly, he must have been waiting for this moment for some time. He said, in my first birth, I was not born happy. I was just as unhappy as you are. But then in my second birth, I was born again. I was born from above. And the result is that I have this joy in my life that is unspeakable in some senses and it's inexplicable in others. You just can't get it because it's so unusual. And this sent Maurice Rubin on a hunt. He bought a New Testament. He began to read. He'd never read it before. And he was amazed that the apostles of Christ Christ were all Jewish. And as he read, he read the Gospel of John. And he came to John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, no one comes to the Father except through me. And he said, I want to know the Father. And he trusted Jesus and he was saved. Now remember the condition that the Father had placed upon his becoming a joint heir of this vast estate. But he could not keep quiet. He began to preach about Christ. He told people about what Jesus had done, who Jesus was, everywhere he went, he told. Of course, his brother became aware of that quickly. He came to him and he said, you better shut up. You're going to lose your inheritance. He said, I don't care. I cannot keep but talk, keep from talking about the Lord. The brother said, look, I'll give you the equivalent amount of the worth of our company. I'll give you 50%. You can leave here if you will move to Montana and promise you'll never come back again. He said, I cannot do that. It was here in Pittsburgh that I saw the light. And it is here that I will continue to follow the light of the world. That next Saturday evening, a knock came at his door. When he opened the door, there were two policemen there. They said, are you Mr. Rubin? He said, yes, I am. We are here with a warrant for your arrest. We are told that you are mentally ill, that you've heard a voice speaking to you. And we have come to take you away. They took him to a mental asylum put in a room with 29 genuinely mentally ill people. And he began to ask God, why are you letting this happen to me? I am following you, Lord. I have risked all of my fortune to follow you. And then in his heart, he sensed God saying to him, Jesus, in fact, saying to him, I have gone to the cross so that you and Myriads of others can be set free. This is what he said to the Lord in response to that thing which Jesus has said to them. There is a cross for everyone, he said, and there is a cross for me. In other words, I need to take up my cross and follow you. So instead of whining and complaining, he began to pray for each one of these other 29 men who were in this mental institution. 
His brother came another time, this time to that mental hospital. And he said to him, Brother, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm still giving you the same offer. Half the value of the business if you will go to Montana. He said, No. Categorically, no. And so the brother left. Six weeks later, a group of Christians had heard about this in Pittsburgh. They put the money together to bail him out. They hired the best lawyers they could find to represent him in court in Pittsburgh. When the day of the trial came, the prosecuting attorney stood and read the charges against him that he was deluded, he was paranoid, he was hearing voices, he was a man who was insane and needed to be institutionalized indefinitely. The judge heard the defense case. And then, as God would have it, the judge was a follower of Jesus Christ, too. Just like the Lord, you know. And this is what he said after he listened to all the testimony. He said, didn't the Apostle Paul hear a voice, too? There was no answer. That wouldn't stand in court today in the court system of our country. God has really kind of abandoned that, and we need to ask God to retake that territory which has been abandoned. But what we do know is God was on the job then. And the long long story short is, this man and his wife, who was not a Christian, she came to the Lord, and they ended up serving the Lord together for years, preaching the gospel in Chicago. It is a necessary test, isn't it? to define how committed we are to Christ, this test of obedience. It's also a purposeful test. It is purposeful because it is designed to prove the genuineness of our faith. It was true with Abraham. It's true for us. Is our faith real? God puts tests in our lives to determine that. In Deuteronomy 8.2, if we were to turn there, we would read that the testing of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness was for their sake, to know if their faith was genuine. God's all-knowing. He knows whether our faith is real. But it's for us. This test is to prove the genuineness of our faith. It's also purposeful to show us the character of God. It's only as we pass through tests that we get to know God. Did you know that? The Bible says, many are the, are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him or her out of them all. Remember the friends of Daniel in the fiery furnace? And Nebuchadnezzar peered into that fire that had been so hot that the men who threw them in incinerated. And he said, they're walking around in there. And there's a fourth person in there. He looks like the Son of God. And he was right. He didn't know, but he was. Jesus was with them in the fire. Look, you may be going through a fire. Because when we're tested, there is opposition as we've seen. You may be going through a fiery trial. But the Lord is with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? The Lord is with me. In Paul's swan song in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he said, Everybody deserted me, but the Lord was with me, and he closed the mouth of the lion. Now, there's debate over what he meant by that. 
Maybe he was thinking he might be thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, which was customary in that time. But probably he was talking about the devil. Because our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But what we know is the Lord was with Paul, and the Lord's with you, and he was with Abraham. He's with every one of his children as we navigate the treacherous waters sometimes of doing the will of God. We see the character of God. He's faithful. In this passage of Scripture, when he's leaving with Isaac to go to the place of supposed sacrifice, he tells the two servants who were with him, he said, we will come back. That's a statement of faith, wasn't it? He was certain we will come back based upon the promise of God and the character of God. God will provide. what he says in verse 8 to his son. God will provide. And then God did provide a sacrifice. If we had read further in this chapter, what happens? God provides a ram caught in the thicket near where the sacrifice would occur by the horns. And that ram subbed in for Isaac, didn't he? And God did provide. We get the term Jehovah Jireh from that verse. I think it's verse 14 in this text. And it really means God sees. That's what it means. It doesn't say He provides, but by virtue of His knowing what lies ahead, He's already provided for you and me for whatever we need to fight this battle and win, but also to be obedient. You know, God will never give you an order. Never. That He does not give you the power to fulfill. I've had some commands the Lord's given to me. And I begged God, God, I remember one time God had told me to do something. And that was killing me to think about doing it. I came home one afternoon, middle of the day. And this is way long ago. 35 plus years ago. And I flung myself down on the bed. And I began to weep. I said, oh God, please. Please don't make me do this. Please. But you know what the Lord did? That next morning when I opened my Bible to read, He gave me clear confirmation that I wasn't just imagining that He was saying this to me. And by faith, I obeyed the Lord. And it was not easy to come to that place of obedience, but it was not easy to sustain a walk of obedience through the years which followed a whole decade of difficulty in my life as a result of being obedient to the Lord. Can you imagine? What about Joseph? Joseph, whom we read about, sent as a slave by his brothers. But when we read from the passage, I hope you listen carefully to Psalm 105 and notice what he said, what the writer of Psalm 105 said. He said, God called a famine on the land and He sent a man before Jacob. It was God who sent the famine. He's sovereign. It was God who sent Joseph as a slave. He was His travel agent. Can you imagine? Sending Him into that situation. And the Scripture says, a later, I hope you heard this too. I know you heard it. Sometimes we don't listen carefully. But listen to what it says. It says, The word of the Lord tested him. Do you know how long that test took? Do you know how long? From the time he was 17 until 30, and then add seven more years to that. 
So that's 20 years and probably several more years after that because Jacob lived quite a while after that. And it was not until Jacob was dead that that word really came true to him. The word of the Lord tests us. But we know that the Lord will fulfill his promise. And here's the last thing that makes this a purposeful test. I would like you to join me at verse 5. And this, when I first saw this, this really deeply impressed me. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and listen carefully. We will worship. What? We will worship? What was he going to do? He's going to give a burnt offering. And burnt offerings are distinctive from guilt offerings and sin offerings. All these various offerings which are prescribed by the law in the first five books of the New Test- Old Testament. rather. But a burnt offering is what we're called to as believers after we come to Christ. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. We're to die to ourselves in order that we may obey the Lord. We have to say no to Mike Woods. We have to say no to whoever you are. That person inside of us, the flesh that reacts often and in opposition to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's what true worship is. The essence of worship is not songs we sing. It's not sermons we hear. The essence of worship is being a person who yields himself or herself fully to the Lord. This is it. Your pride, putting it on the altar. Everything that you value. All those things that you look to for a sense of value other than the person of Jesus Christ. All of that is of no value in the final analysis. And the way to get free of that is to humble yourself before the Lord as Jesus did and made Himself nothing. And that's true worship. We can sing for hours, listen to a long sermon like this one, and that doesn't constitute worship unless we do it to glorify the Lord. Here's the last observation about this test. It is a rewarding test for us. Further revelation of God comes when we obey God. John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Now carefully follow. And I will reveal myself to him. Do you know why God's not revealing himself to you maybe today? Why he's not speaking to your heart? It's at least probable if not actual. The reason is, you haven't obeyed Him in some area of your life. He's been talking to you about it. Some sin to abandon. Some relationship to put aside. Some habit that you can't let go of. You say, I just can't let go of it. Look, the Bible tells us that with Christ, all things are possible. It's not easy to repent of sin. But it is possible Otherwise, God would not tell us to do it in His Word. John Calvin said, The knowledge of God is born of obedience. He was right. 
We don't know God unless we obey God. Do you know what the primary commandment of the Lord is? Well, let me preface that with something that is said earlier in the book of 1 John. He said, the commandments of God are not burdensome. And I'll put my little own interpretation is they're not a drag. We talk about things being a drag. They're not a drag. They're liberating, in fact, aren't they? What does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me is a person who is my disciple. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will do what? Will it tie you up? It will set you free. So the Lord sets us free if we link up with Him and we trust Him. We obey Him. Also, we'll have His peace. In Isaiah forty-eight eighteen, the Bible says, If only you'd paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. I like that. I want that kind of peace. Do you want that kind of peace? It's available to us if only we pay attention to His commands. And here are those commands that I said. They summarize all the other commandments, I believe. In 1 John 3.23, here's the first one, and it's the most basic one. You get this, the other is a possibility. You don't get this, the others are impossible. Here it is. That you believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean to have simple intellectual agreement with who Christ is, what Christ did. Not at all. It means trusting your life to Him, leaning wholly upon Him. And then it goes on to say, and love one another. That captures what obedience really boils down to. Believing in God. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God. And remember, obedience is necessary to knowing Him. Is it worth knowing the Lord? Absolutely it is. And in His presence there is fullness of joy. Elizabeth Elliot said, Stress is delayed obedience. It is. Some of you are under stress and you're trying to figure out why. Well, ask the Lord, Lord, is there some area of my life I'm withholding from you? Am I withholding a full commitment to you? And what happens is just like a burden's lifted. I can remember when that happened in my life. And I've had repeated ex- expressions of that as I've walked with the Lord for quite a while. And this is a rewarding test for other people, too. Think about Abraham, who were his offspring. The Jewish nation. And have we been blessed? Have we as Gentiles been blessed? Absolutely we've been blessed. Jesus came from Isaac, who came from Abraham. And follow the line of Jesus. We have been incredibly blessed by what Abraham did. Look, our lives make a difference if we're obedient to God. I don't know about you. But I don't want to leave this world having frittered my life away, believing that it's my life to live. It is not my life to live. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I'm to glorify God through my body. And that's true of all of us. And it's such a joy to be used by the Lord in that way. 
Well, let's close. I'm going to give you some traits that come out of this teaching today of people of faith. And people of faith are people who obey the Lord. Real faith issues in obedience. Here's the first one. They don't look back. Some of you live in the past. Some of you have come to know Christ. But you're bugged by your past. When you receive Christ, if in fact you did trust Him with a whole heart, if you receive Christ, then this is what is true of you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul said late in life, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Luke 9.62, Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Looking back is taboo and sabotages our being men and women of faith. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Thank you. I know you're doing your memory work. It's awesome. (laughs) Do you know the second shortest verse? Remember Lot's wife. What did she do as she left Sodom? What did she do? She looked back and what happened to her? She turned into a pillar of salt. The Bible says that those who worship false gods become like them. She worshiped money because money was represented a form of currency with salt. She loved the world. So don't look back. Once you follow Christ, don't look back. Once you yield to Christ, don't worry about the past. Live in the present. Look forward. Look number two. They leave the future in God's hands. Abram did that, didn't he, when he and Sarah left? Yeah, we leave it all in the Lord's hands. It doesn't mean we're not active. We've seen that, I hope, today. We're going to be following Christ. This is what we're going to do. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Follow Christ. Do what He did. Say the things that He said. Here's the third thing. Also, people of faith undergo tests from God. Hopefully, that's been well documented so far, here's the fourth thing. People of faith take God as His Word. Open the Bible. Read the Bible. See if God speaks to you. He will speak to you if you want to hear from Him. He will speak to you. And then what is your responsibility? To believe what He says and trust Him. This next statement is like the flip side of the previous one. People of faith obey the Lord completely and quickly. Psalm 119.60 says this, I hastened and did not delay to obey the commandments of the Lord. Do you ever drag your feet in obeying the Lord? Just kind of, it's like a ball and chain. Your disobedience is like a ball and chain. Once more, I'll quote Elizabeth Elliot. She said, delayed obedience is disobedience. It's like with your kids. You say, do this. Yes, Daddy. You come back through the room again. Did I tell you to do that? Yes, Daddy. I'll do it. Come back a third time, they still haven't done it. What do you do? I'm not going to ask for testimonies here on that. (laughs) But if I say I'm going to do something in obedience and don't do it, forget about it. I'm a liar. Here's the last thing. We have struggles. But God causes all things to work together for good, doesn't He? Struggle's part of it. But it's well worth that as we follow the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the time of worship.
of You You've given us today. We want You to be honored by our lives. We ask You, Lord, to forgive us for running our own lives and ruining them and those around us. Help us to be men and women in a church that wants to be obedient to You in all matters. We trust You for the power for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless. Hope you have a great week.